Well, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 13 this morning. 2 Samuel 13, if you have a Bible with you. One of my daughters has recently, recently been studying Macbeth for school, and it's good timing for me because I was reminded of some of the, theme, the, the play's themes and realizing that a number of those themes have similarities to where we are in our study of the book of 2 Samuel and where we'll go in days ahead. Now, I won't go into specifics about Macbeth. Three people here were disappointed about that. Uh, the rest of you breathed a collective sigh of relief. It's been a long time since I read Macbeth, but I do recall that there is the overarching question of who is or who will be the heir to the throne. And that's certainly behind the scenes in 2 Samuel 13, and it will be forefront in later chapters. I also recall that in Macbeth, there is a recurring line or theme, appearances can be deceiving. And that's certainly what we find in 2 Samuel 13, that appearances can be deceiving, that things are not always as they seem. And like in Macbeth, so in 2 Samuel 13, things go from bad to worse. They go from bad to worse. 2 Samuel 13 begins with one of the darkest, sickest, and saddest scenes in all the Bible. And from there, as various characters in the story seek to address or redress the issue, well, matters go from bad to worse. Of course, let's remember that these aren't just characters in a story. But this is God's story. It is history. This isn't written by William Shakespeare or the like, but this is given to us by God. It is his living and lasting word, and all of it is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. Even this passage that we'll look at today. We'll read it in just a minute here, but let me say before we do that originally I intended to cover 2 Samuel 13 and 14, which added up to about 72 verses, and you can already tell where I'm going with this. That was far too ambitious of me when we had the sermon notes printed on Thursday or so of this week. Uh, we'll only do chapter 13 this week. Uh, they're very much connected, and I wanted to show those connections, but we'll try to do that next week more as we focus on chapter 14. So just 13 this week. Let's read the whole chapter. It'll take us about six minutes to read the whole thing, but it's good to every now and then read a big part of the Bible together to remind ourselves that we can do this and that this should actually be a small version of what we're doing privately and as families together, maybe a chapter won't feel that much to you if we're doing it often. Five or six minutes or so to read, and it covers five years in the story. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, 
for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat, her, eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a, a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat it. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. 
Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous, be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. And the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, For Amnon alone is dead, for by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've been in the two previous chapters, and we saw King David's great fall in chapter 11, where he had adultery with Bathsheba. And then to cover up the adultery and the child conceived, he had her her husband murdered in the battlefield. We saw in chapter 12 last week that the prophet Nathan came to David in confrontation. And by God's grace, David repented. And by God's grace, God forgave his sins. And yet, the rod of correction, the prophet said, would come upon David, and it would remain there for the rest of his life. We read chapter 12, verse 10 last week, Nathan saying, The sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 11, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. That's exactly what we're seeing here in chapter 13, isn't it? And we see and we learn that God is true to his word. He is true to his word. And chapter 13, sadly, is just the beginning of it as things continue to go from bad to worse. But can anything else be learned from this dark chapter than that God is true to his word? Well, indeed, there is much that can be gleaned and learned 
and applied from this chapter. So let's dig into it. There are three movements to chapter 13. Three R words will help us think through the chapter. It starts with that gut-wrenching story, the ravaging of Tamar. Verses 1 through 22 show us the ravaging of Tamar. Now you have to know at this time, at the beginning of chapter 13, Amnon is the heir apparent as the eldest Davidic son. And next in line in birth is Absalom. These are sons of David, and like father, like son. Doesn't chapter 13 sound familiar to you? Do you see how chapter 13 is like a replaying of chapter 11 of David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah? Except that in chapter 13 now, the sin of the sons is much, much worse than the sins of the father. Chapter 13 is like chapter 11 on steroids. It's David's sins 2.0. Both stories, chapter 11 and 13, start with a beautiful woman, which is of no fault to either of them. God gives beauty. He makes beautiful God also makes and gives sexual desire to be expressed and enjoyed in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. But God has not intended for the animal-like lust that we see in Amnon. That's what it is. It's lust. Verse 1 calls it love. He loved her. But that's just using the word love like many do today. It's how Amnon spoke of it, right? He didn't call it for what it is. He said he loved her. And we hear people today who, when they speak of love, really mean something more related to the loins, to desire, to passion, to lust. And this lust was for a half-sister. The Old Testament strictly forbade incest. It's an unbridled lust. Verse 2, he was tormented with lust, so much so that it, it made him ill. It seemed impossible to do anything to her. Perhaps it was impossible because they were brothers and sisters, and he was reluctant to violate the law. Perhaps it was impossible because, well, she's a princess, and she's around a royal guard all the time. We're not sure why it was impossible, but we do know it is sick and disgusting and twisted for Amnon to desire to do something to her. Enter Amnon's quote-unquote friend, his cousin, Jonadab. We're immediately told in verse 3 that he was a very crafty man. And he has a very crafty plan for his cousin. He tells him to fake illness and then ask King David to send Tamar to him with cake. And that's all he says. And that's all Amnon needs. Amnon knows how to take it from there. And he does. So Amnon fakes illness, asks his father for Tamar's cake. 
She comes with cake, and Amnon kicks everyone out of the room except her. He gets her near him, near the bed. Verse 11, verse 11 says that he took hold of her, and he said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. Words which should never go together. Lie with my sister. Now, Tamar, we'll see, is a very godly girl. She knows where this thing is going, and it's not going to happen without a fight, a godly fight. So listen to her response to her brother's invitation to incest. It has eight layers to it. Verse 12, she starts with the most important word, ladies, no. No, she tells the crown prince, no. She says, no, my brother. Yes, he said sister. She responds with brother to remind him, yes, sister and brother. As in, this is not good, we don't do this. She says, do not violate me. Using a very strong Hebrew word, violate, humiliate, abuse. She reminds Amnon that this sort of thing is not done in Israel. We are not Canaanites who take whatever we want and do whatever we will. We're the Lord's people. Do not do this outrageous thing, this foolish thing, this perverted thing. And then she asks Amnon to consider the consequences. First for her. Verse 13, as for me, where could I carry my shame? Don't you know what this will do to me? Don't you know about the shame? As for you, you would be as one of those outrageous fools in Israel. One of the famous fools of the Bible. And then there's one more layer, a last ditch effort. Now, therefore, she says, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Now, I don't suspect that she was being sincere, that she was saying, let's just go ask the king if we can get married. I'm sure he'll say yes. Hopefully, King David would not have said yes. I think what she was doing was a desperate attempt to hit eject in that moment right there. Who knows if it'll happen again? Just get out of this one. It's godly, it's wise, it's thorough, her protest. But sadly, it's not enough for Amnon's lust. He would not listen to her, verse 14. Being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. He forced her. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says... He laid her. There's no with. And as soon as he had his way with her, he hated her. And he was done with her. He said, get up, go. Get up, get out. As great as his lust was before he had her. So now great, even greater was his hatred for her after taking her. Why? Why did he hate her afterwards? Well, that's the way sin works. Temptation comes to us, and the sin on the other side seems sweet. It seems inevitable. 
It seems harmless. It seems necessary to our satisfaction. But once sin conceives, sin becomes a mirror of our true self. Amnon really hated himself. And when he looked at the Tamar he violated, that's all he could see, himself and his filth. So he hated her, and he wanted it out of his sight. That's basically how he refers to her in verse 17. Put this woman out of my presence. Literally, put this thing out of here. But don't miss Tamar's second protest in verse 16 regarding her ejection. She says, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. Here's what she's saying. She has in mind, no doubt, that the old covenant had this rule, that rape basically made women unmarriable except for the man who raped her. Thankfully, that's not true in the new covenant. But it was then, and it was a factor. So Amnon may not have been able to marry her because they were half-brother and sister, but he could have cared for her. Her problem of being unmarriable was to be his problem because he did it. He could have done what Absalom, the other brother, would later do in the chapter. But instead, she's thrown out like yesterday's garbage. Verse 20 says that she was a desolate woman. She had been desolated by a brother. And yet, on the other side of that bolted door, we see once again her godliness shine through the muck and the hate. Look in verse 19. This is a lament, and a very public one, rightly so. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. What Amnon did in private, she would not allow to remain private. She exposed it and made it public. Now let's pause here and bring this to bear on today, on us. And for some in this room today, I don't need to hit pause and bring it to today for you to go there because you've already been there. You've already, in this morning's message, been thinking about this because this Tamar stuff, this stuff you know all too well. One in five girls in this country has been a victim of sexual abuse. One in 20 boys are sexually abused. If that's you today, can I just say, for what it's worth, I'm so, so sorry. And I'm really sad about that. But what's more, God is sad about that. God has emotions. God cares. God sees and he's there. He collects our tears in a bottle. He counts our tossings. In the night, you can bring this to him. He cares and he heals what's more. Yes, yeah, slow healing, painful healing, 
probably healing that's never done in this lifetime, but true healing is with him. And with him, there, there's no such thing as damaged goods. And he shows us his care, and he helps us to heal in part through others, brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you have ever been sexually abused and you've never talked to anyone about that, can I encourage you to talk to someone this week? Call the church, send an email to one of our pastors. We'd be glad to meet with you. Julie Wesselman, our director of women's ministries, her email is on the website as well. I know she would be glad to either meet with you or set up a time for you to meet with someone else that she trusts. Talk to someone. If you've never reported abuse that's been done to you, you need to. You need to. Tamar did. Let me talk to the men here for just a minute. Christian men, we don't do this. God has given us our strength for the protection of our women and our girls. This isn't just about rape. We don't do the things that are in the same sinful trajectory. Porn. Uh-uh. No, no, no. Second glances. That's not. We don't objectify women. We shouldn't. Are you horrified by the objectification of women in our culture, or are you so used to it, so numb to it, and quite glad it's available to you? Are we contributing to that or resisting it in living out a different worldview? This relates to the kind of music you listen to. Some music is nasty and filthy about women and should not be in Christians' ears. This means we need to cherish and celebrate modesty and lead our wives and daughters in it. It means much, much more than what I've said, and I wish I had the time to talk more about the implications of this chapter. So I'd encourage you individually and as families and maybe especially in your community groups to talk about this week the implications of this chapter for our, our lives, our homes, and even our church. Of course, other than Tamar's godly resistance, what we'll find in this chapter for us today is what not to do, how not to handle this stuff. But it's a powerful, negative example that God has given us here in 2 Samuel 13. Back to 2 Samuel 13. It was evident to all who heard Tamar and saw her what had happened to her. And it was evident to Absalom, her brother, what had happened when he comes upon her. And it's evident to Absalom who was responsible did you notice that his first guess about who had done it was dead right? Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? He doesn't even wait for her to answer. It's a rhetorical question. He knows who's done it. That tells you something about this Amnon character. Absalom, her better brother, tells her in verse 20, Now hold your peace, my sister. 
He says, do not take this to heart. That sounds dismissive. It probably isn't dismissive. Although, it's certainly not something you want to say if you were in his shoes and encountering a woman who had just been raped. But let's give Absalom the benefit of the doubt here. What we have here in verse 20 is really a foreshadow of what's to come. Essentially, Absalom is saying, Sister, don't take this to heart because I will. Sister, hold your peace because I won't. Absalom took her into his house where she lived, a desolate woman. And that's the last thing we hear about Tamar. That's it. We don't know how it goes from there. It's sad. But it's not the end of the story. What will come of this? How will Absalom respond? That's the question. More importantly, how will the king respond? Verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. That's good. Very angry. That's good. But notice, there's a period, and the next sentence is talking about someone else. That's it. He was angry. He did nothing. Not as king, not as father. Perhaps it was his, the persistence of his guilt for his past sins that paralyzed him from appropriately judging the situation and doing what was right. Perhaps it was because his sins in chapter 11 were quite similar to the sins of his son in chapter 13. But that's not an option for David to, to be weak, to not do what he should do as king. God disciplined him in chapter 12, but he didn't remove him from the throne of Israel or being judge. And God had not removed David from the head of his home. He should have punished Amnon and exonerated his daughter. And he did neither. He was just angry, impotent anger. Absalom was angry too, but chillingly so. He spoke to Amnon, verse 22, neither good nor bad. No talking. For, he hated Ab, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. Well, from the ravaging of Tamar, we move on to, secondly, the revenge of Absalom. The revenge of Absalom starts in verse 23 with these few words, after two full years, two full years of David doing nothing, Two full years of Absalom's bitter anger growing and brewing. Two full years of silence with Amnon. Two full years of everyone around them letting their guard down. Perhaps early on they were worried about what Absalom might do. But now we're two years in. And two years in, Absalom pushes the go button on his revenge plan. It's sheep shearing time. And Absalom is throwing a sheep shearing party. So he asks the brothers to join him for a sheep shearing party. 
He asked King David and all of David's entourage to come to this party in Baal Hazar. Now, that's a bit much to ask the king and all his entourage to go to a sheep-shearing party. And he knows the king will refuse it. The king says, no, that's too much. So Absalom asks if Amnon can go. Why him, David asks. And we're not told exactly what Amnon said. You can see the persistence in these verses. We're told simply in verse 27 that Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon go. And all the king's sons go with him. From there, the situation is all set except for one thing. Who will do the deed? So Absalom gives orders to his servants in verse 28. Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him, do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. That's the language that usually precedes holy wars in the Old Testament. Those are words you'd expect to find on the lips of Joshua before the people enter another battle. But this is no holy war. This is not God's battle. The Old Testament law didn't demand execution for rapists. There was punishment, there was restitution, but not ex execution. Yes, David did nothing, and that's frustrating, but Absalom's murder plot isn't providing justice and equity for the land or even his sister. In fact, we'll find out by the end of this situation, it makes her situation even worse. I'm sure some of us can somewhat sympathize with an extreme response to a sister's rape or a daughter's rape, and you think, good, he's going to do it, I would do it too. But, but don't give Absalom a pass here, he's not righteous. As we'll see in future chapters, there's every reason to suspect that here, Absalom's motivation in Amnon's death is not just avenging his sister's rape, is not just because the anger kept growing and David did nothing, but here is also an opportunity for the secondborn to take out the firstborn, for the heir apparent to be removed from the path to the throne. Absalom is extremely opportunistic. He's very calculating, and he's usually successful. And he sure was here. Verse 29, the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. That's it. It's done. In chapter 11, David slept with Bathsheba and sent her away. In chapter 13, Amnon raped his half-sister and threw her away. In chapter 11, David had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed to cover up the battle, but he had him killed on the battlefield at the hands or the arrows of the Ammonites. But in chapter 13, Absalom had his own brother killed in cold blood in the middle of a celebratory feast and in the midst of all his brothers. Like father, like son, but way worse. The sword shall never depart from your house, God said. He will raise up evil against you out of your own house. 
Can you imagine being one of the brothers there at the feast that day? Amnon, Absalom rather says the word, take Amnon and the servants kill your brother Amnon, the heir to the throne. You'd have to think you're next if you're any of the other brothers. You'd have to think this is like Michael Corleone uh, taking out all the heads of the families in one single day. It's that kind of thing, right? So they flee, verse 29, all the king's sons, they got on their mules and fled. I don't know how fast they fled on mules, but they were on mules. There you go. Now, thirdly, starting in verse 39, we see the remorse of David. There's the ravaging of Tamar, the revenge of Absalom, and now the remorse of David? Question mark? Why did I put a question mark after the remorse of David? Well, because is it? He's crying, but is it remorse? What is it? What's going on in these last 10 verses of the chapter? David is sorrowful, but what does it mean? Remember I said at the beginning that things are not always as they seem. It's all through this chapter. Amnon's love wasn't love at all. His desire for her was dropped like a a dirty rag, and he, he hated her after he had her. David, he'd been tricked into delivering Tamar into the rapist Amnon's hands. David was angry at what Amnon did, but not angry enough to do anything about it. David was then tricked again, this time to deliver Amnon into Absalom's murderous hands. A nice meal turned into an execution. Things are not always as they seem. We should keep that in mind in this last section. Jonadab shows up again in the story after verse 31 when the king hears news. He hears news that all the sons were dead. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. Jonadab... That crafty Jonadab from early in the story who gave Amnon the plans to take Tamar, he is now there to tell David that it wasn't all the sons that died, but just Amnon. Somehow he knows how many are dead, who's dead, and why. It's because he violated his sister, Jonadab said. How does he know all this? We're not told. He's crafty. And sure enough, he's right. So the king's sons soon return. Verse 36, they came, they lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all the servants wept very bitterly. As for Absalom, verse 37 tells us that Absalom fled and went to Telmai in Geshur, modern-day Syria. His mom's relatives, pagans. He was there, we're told in verse 38, for three years. As for David, we're told in verse 37, David mourned for his son day after day. But which son? Which son? It doesn't say. Why did he mourn? You say, well, isn't it obvious? These are really crappy times. But, but, 
But we need to be more specific. What's going on? What's he mad about or sad about? Did he mourn his earlier neglect in passivity? Did he again mourn his sin with Bathsheba and murder of Hariah in the chastisement that had come upon his extended family now? We don't know. We're not told. In fact, in verse 39, the Hebrew is confusing, probably showing us a confused man. Look down at verse 39. I think this shows a conflicted spirit in David because the words are odd. It says in the English Standard Version, the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. Longed to go out in reconciliation? Probably not. Tune in next week. Longed to go out in battle? More likely, but we're not told. Longed to go out, this phrase in Hebrew, can be either positive or negative. And then this phrase that David was comforted about Amnon because he was dead. Well, like that phrase, longed to go out. So this word in Hebrew for comforted can be either positive or negative. It can mean comforted or grieved. And again, I think the writer of 2 Samuel is purposefully using ambivalent language to describe an ambivalent king. He's a torn man. He's paralyzed. It looks like remorse. But it's definitely not repentance. It looks like longing for and being comforted by but it could be just the opposite. And this is the situation for three long years. No justice, no restitution, no pursuit, no mention of Tamar, no heir to the throne in Israel, at least not in the land. And all of this because of David's adultery and murder in chapter 11 and because of his passivity in chapter 13. You should know that David's passivity from here on out will be the most frequent and the most costly of his sins. Do you know that passivity is a sin? It can be. We've seen it before in the telling of the Samuel story. You might remember back in 1 Samuel 2 and 3, the story of Eli, the priest. He had wicked sons. He kept hearing, it says, all that his sons were doing, how they were laying with women at the front gate of the tent of meeting, the church doors, basically. And all Eli did is say, what are you guys doing? And that's it. In a chapter later, a prophet hears from God that God will punish Eli's house because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. At the very end of David's life, this is the theme, and it's a summary for his parenting. In 1 Kings 1.6, with the king on his deathbed, this referring to another son of David, Adonijah, it says, his father David had never at any time displeased him by asking, what have you done thus and so? He had never confronted his son. Take Note, fathers, being angry and very angry at sin is sometimes not enough. 
and being sad and very sad about your kid's sin is sometimes not enough. Do you see yourself in this hollow portrait of a weak dad and king? If so, tremble. It does not go well. Do you see your sins being passed along and taken up by your kids? God help us. And you know, even when our worst habits are not replicated by our kids, every one of us, every generation is still passing along sin in general to kids and to the next generation. In the case of the best parents who have the best kids, they're all sinners still. For heaven's sake, when will it stop? It's easy to think that 2 Samuel 13 isn't about you if you're not a rapist or a murderer. But remember, we all deserve eternal death because of our sin, our rebellion against God. Don't think, don't think for a bit that sin isn't rebellion. In a sense, we are all Absaloms. We are all Amnons. You may not have committed murder or rape, but we're all born sick with sin, taking what we want. We're all hateful in our hearts, which Jesus taught hate as the soil out of which murder grows. We're all born on the run from the king and exiled from his kingdom. We're all Amnons and Absaloms, and we're all in trouble by nature. We are all David. All of us at different times and in different ways have not done what we should have done, have not been strong where we needed to be strong. We've been passive, we've waffled, we've been uh, angry or aggravated, but wimpy, and it's sin. We are all Tamar. In a sense, we've all been victims of other people's sins, some small, some great. I don't want to in any way minimize a true Tamar experience. Not all of us have gone through that. Yes and amen. But in this extreme case of the desolated Tamar, We can remind ourselves again of those times when we were mistreated, wronged, abused, taken advantage of by someone else. Injustice seemed absent. God seemed silent. It's good to feel her injustice and to know our lesser injustices. To remember that we still have injustices that we need to better give to him, hand over to him for him to deal with. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not yours. But where is the justice in this world? Where is justice for the Tamars? And where is your justice? And where in the world is mercy? We don't want all justice, do we? Because we're all damned. 
if that's what we want. We want mercy. We want true mercy, not ambivalence, not going someplace else. We want mercy. Is there any mercy for Absalom's, for Amnon's? Is there any hope? Is there any hope for lust and lusters? Is there any hope for those who hate and harbor bitterness? Will mercy ever be shown to them? It all seems so hopeless until we remember that in this matrix, this complex matrix of sins and issues and people and relationships, in that we remember that Jesus, the son of David, the righteous one, the only true king, and the final judge. He is all these things. He is the perfect answer and the only solution for this complex matrix of sins and complexities and hurts and things and issues. Jesus is it. He alone wasn't born in sin. He alone didn't commit sin. And so he alone does not pass on his sin to his offsprings, to his offspring or to his brothers or sisters. He's finally the faithful son that the plan of God awaited for long and long years and years, millennia and millennia before. The Bible tells a story of one big long line of unfaithful sons to God. So here what we have we have a whole chapter loaded with unfaithful sons from David to his sons. But Jesus is the better son, the better king. He is this world's righteous judge. He will make it right in the end. Vengeance is his because vengeance is coming. His justice is pure and his justice is complete. Let me tell you something. You don't have enough justice to hand out to someone when they sin against you. Because sin, the, the payment for sin is death. And that payment is either met upon Jesus on the cross or in hell forever. You don't have enough wrath to pour out on those who have wrath against you. Leave it to the wrath of God. There's your justice. There was Tamar's justice, whether she knew it yet or not. And if you think that that's just a, a trite hope, a, a consolation in your suffering, that in the end there will be true justice with Jesus, well, let me just ask you to imagine talking to Tamar today about the sins against her and the justice of God. I think she's okay right now. She's probably with Jesus. And all is well. That's what's coming. He's the faithful son, the righteous judge. He's this world's only and perfect savior. There's your mercy. Not in God being ambivalent about your sin. Not in God putting you someplace else. Not in God being angry, but not taking it out on you. But God being angry upon his son, for us. That's what the cross is all about. We said last week from Romans 3 that God, upon the cross, 
shows us that he's just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. Jesus saves. He's the redeemer. He's not just a forgiver or a savior or the source of mercy, but he's a restorer. He's a reconciler. The righteous one died for the unrighteous ones that he might bring us to God, that he might take us out of exile, that he might bring us home. He's a life changer. We don't have to be what we used to be. We're not just forgiven. We're not just reconciled and restored. He's making us new. Not perfectly yet, but genuinely so. So that's why we can say, this isn't us. We don't do this. No, no, no. This thing is not done in the church of God. And Jesus is also the comforter. He's the shepherd. He's kind. He's near. He's given us his spirit. He's gentle. He's meek. He's good. He's all these things. Hallelujah. What a savior. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we pray that by your spirit as Christians, you would help us from this passage to, to greater abhor our sin, to see its ugliness for what it is. Help us to lament the effects of our sins on others, the effects of others' sins upon others. Lord, help us to do better in mourning injustices, Help us to weep with those who weep. Help us to take note of the domino effect of bitterness, that it's murderous. Help us, Lord, to see the hopelessness of a world when we are left to ourselves and to our own devices. That's what we see in 2 Samuel 13, but Lord, you lead us on past that to see and to show us and to remind us of a faithful son, a righteous judge, a perfect savior and substitute, a redeemer, a restorer, a transformer, a comforter, a shepherd, and healer. Hallelujah, what a savior. Help us to speak of this savior often. Help us to commune with him even now. Help us, Lord, to praise you as we sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.